Hello and welcome to episode number four of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanic eruptions and activity worldwide. I'm Eric Clemetti from Denison University and Discover Magazine. And I am Janine Kribner of the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program. So this month's episode is going to be focused a lot on the shakeout. We're going to be getting to our guest, Brian Turbush, from the Washington State Emergency Management Division later on in the podcast. Uh, but as usual, we're going to have a little bit of an update about what might be going on worldwide, volcanically speaking. Uh, but before we even get to that... I have to bring up one other thing, and that is we can now refer to ourselves as the uh, award-winning podcast, Popular Volcanics, because Janine, you have recently won an award. I have. For those of you who are not, don't follow the comings and goings of the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. Janine is the recipient of the Geoscience in the Media Award for 2019. So I offer you congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, when I got the call, I honestly, I was like, what have I done? Someone needs to talk to me. And when the president told me why he was calling, my jaw dropped. <laughs> so um, yeah, thank you everyone out there who's been sending me wonderful messages. I'm still stunned and <laughs> still feeling a little awkward and, and blushing about it. So thank you very much. So do you get like a plaque or something like that or a trophy? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm going to a ceremony in Houston next year, um, which is going to be interesting because you know I worked for Shell for a few years, so I might see some old colleagues there. Have you ever been to an AAPG meeting? I have not, no. Yeah, having worked for Shell for over two years, um, I, I pretty much know what to expect. But um, no, it's, it's a good group of people. A lot of people there that I worked with were very passionate about, you know, doing things right, um, making sure that the environment was in good shape with the things they did. So it was a good time. So what did you, I'm, I'm curious now, what did you do for Shell? I was doing exploration, um, deep sea exploration, but uh, so a lot of seismic interpretation. And what that is, is when we um, do geophysical surveys of the subsurface, which is basically bouncing waves down through the rock layers and the, each rock layer um, when there's a change in some kind of property it bounces a wave back and we get essentially a very fancy set of squiggles and uh, most of my job was figuring out the geology using this and how the geology developed through time so it's kind of a different sort of detective work to what I do right now and it was kilometers below the surface and things that I could never actually see or touch. So it was frustrating at times, but I learned a lot. And I even saw under uh, volcanoes in the air, some of the areas offshore Australia, which was pretty neat. Cool. No one else cared as much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> so right before we hit record here, I was saying the dangerous words that things are awfully quiet volcanically. So can, can you to elaborate? Which I shouted out, please don't say that out loud because something's <laughs> going to happen now. Yep. Well, <laughs> again, I, f I feel bad because that's like, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind if something happened in a remote place where people aren't going to be impacted. But um, but yeah, what is going on? Well, do you know how many volcanoes we have erupting around the world at the moment? I'm trying to remember last time how many it was, and I'm guessing it's fewer than last time is my the only number I'm going to offer right now. <laughs> Are you sure? I, I am 
absolutely not sure. <laughs> well, you're right. It's 46. So we've had a few eruptions fall off the list for actively erupting. And that happens when a volcano hasn't done anything at the surface. So produced something, some kind of product, whether it's ash or lava, for three months. That's our cutoff date here at the Global Volcanism Program. So now we're down to 46, and this is normal. It ranges between normally 40 or 50 ongoing eruptions at any given time because um, we live on a very active planet and there are so many benefits to volcanoes, so they need to keep doing this for us. And we need to keep moving out of the way whenever our populations are threatened. Yeah, I was looking at the weekly report that came out. I guess this is the one that came out on the 8th. So uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday, we'll yes, the 9th, which and we are recording on the 10th. Yes. So, so, so it's, I, I did feel like it was a little, it felt a little shorter than other reports I've seen in the recent past. So a bunch of the sort of recurrent volcanoes that we see like almost every week these days, like Fuego and, you know, Karimsky or uh, Nevada del Ruiz. So the usual suspects, but not a lot in the way of what we'd consider new activity. There's only two that showed up in that column this week. So I'm curious now, if the Olawan one is where something is ending, why does it get listed as new on the report? It's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I ask this mostly because I get this, I, I have gotten this question in the past is like, you know, what what's considered new on the report? Is it something that's newly active or is it just something... I guess the the new the new throws me for a loop sometimes because it's not necessarily new activity. It could be like you said, a, a change in the activity. So uh, I thought you might have uh, insights into that. You know what? I'm going to find out, and we can discuss that next time. Sounds good. Awesome. There's also so activity for weekly updates, and it's not all activity. It's it's when there's something notable going on because um, covering forty to fifty volcanoes a week for. Sally, who is here with us, would be a heck of a lot. But you can go to the Smithsonian website, volcano.si.edu, and check out those. But we also have a list of erupting volcanoes. So the Smithsonian website, which is what I help work on as well, is where you can go for all of your volcano activity around the world that we know of. We still miss stuff too because there's just so much. Yeah, there's plenty of sort of small eruptions that happen in remote places that we wouldn't even notice happening because somebody has to be watching it or that some of the, I mean, a lot of these eruptions, just even the ones we notice don't end up getting preserved in the rock record much, if at all, if it's just sort of like a dusty, steamy plume or something like that. So uh, it's this activity is very much like we probably have a, I think we said this before, we have a very good idea, much more so now of the extent of activity on the planet than we had a decade or two ago. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, it wasn't too long ago, several decades ago, where the global information of volcanoes was coming to the Smithsonian on postcards, actual postcards. <laughs> so you can imagine that would take a while to get here and then that would be dispersed. And now we you, we use remote sensing data here at the Smithsonian to track it, as well as uh, research and observations from other scientists and anyone near the volcano. So it's, a, it's so much easier to see it now, but there's still so much going on. Did the Smithsonian keep those postcards? Yes, we have it all filed here. That's interesting. It'd be fascinating to kind of see that sort of correspondence of 
volcanic activity in the sort of pre-internet days of postcards and, I don't know, telegrams. I imagine there must be some telegrams in the archives too, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's changed a lot. Um, you know, to order to, in order to see these things, someone has to be watching and someone has to take note of it. And then it has to get the people, to the people, us, who are recording it. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of different steps that go into this. Um, but we're, we have so many more satellites now that have freely available information. So it's a lot easier now. Anything else that's going on currently? Yes. And I even had a special request to mention this. And this is something that comes up all the time. So I am very happy to mention it. So the Deep Carbon Observatory has come out with a new paper very recently. Um, and there's one line in here that I'm going to read out. And this is a very important line because this is something that is misunderstood a lot and something that is regurgitated a lot without people ever looking up the actual information. So the line is, are you ready? I'm ready. Humanity's annual carbon emissions through the burning of fossil fuels and forests, etc., are 40 to 100 times greater than all volcanic emissions. So this is something that volcanologists, we've known this, but now we have a much better grasp on the actual numbers behind it. So go check out the Deep Carbon Observatory if you want to know more. Um, they're online as well, and their report's been circulating on social media as well. So... For everyone out there that is talking about how climate change is just because of volcanoes, volcanoes have been doing the same thing for a really long time with natural variation. So we know this, we have numbers, people are studying these things now. Not the case. Volcanoes are producing far less emissions than we are. Few things drive me more nuts than seeing a report of a volcanic eruption on, let's say, Twitter and seeing the parade of comments afterwards that people try to say, well, that's another 10,000 cars that that volcano is spitting out, implying that carbon dioxide from that volcanic eruption is going to negate any attempts to lower carbon emissions by human causes. And that clearly the numbers you had there pretty clearly say that that volcanoes are not the source of changing carbon dioxide. They're definitely the source of carbon dioxide and they're a, a constant. Yeah, I mean, it's a constant source. It hasn't, it's not like volcanic activity is increasing. Which it's not. To make, <laughs> yes, to, it, volcanic activity isn't increasing to match the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So uh, volcanoes, it's a nice, easy thing to get people to incorrectly assume that they might be the cause for increasing carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah, and we've got to be so careful, everyone. Be careful of what you read. You know, um, part of my job tracking volcanic activity is looking to social media to see what information is out there because often people will post photos or videos or, or observations of what they see. So I actually look and there is so much misinformation out there. In fact, a few months ago, there was a video that went viral um, and people were saying, I think people were saying it was Cinnabung. It was a CGI eruption to show what might happen if an eruption occurred underwater in, at, in Auckland, New Zealand. And it was about a volcano Cinnabung, which is not underwater at all. So, and this, or in New or Zealand. Or in New Zealand. Yeah, it went viral and none of this was, you know, it, w it wouldn't take much. You'd have to Google an image of Cinnabung to see that this was complete and utter wrong. So 
be careful what you share, be careful what you read. There are plenty of volcanologists on social media and working with really hardworking science writers and media to get good information out there. Thank you, science writers. I love you guys so much. Typically when I'm looking around for pictures of recent events, volcanic events. It's sort of the, you know, the rule of thumb is that if it's something that's that's brand new, things are too good to be true if they are these striking, perfectly framed images of volcanic activity. I, I always have to be very cautious when I am sifting through social media for authentic documentation of volcanic eruptions, because a lot of them, a lot of the times, the first things you see are kind of crappy video that people took as they were trying to get away or from some far distance. So you always want to be careful that you're not just recycling an image of a past volcanic eruption that happened to be very pretty that people just latch onto because whatever, they want to get attention on social media. Yeah, I would I would even nearly say that 99 to 100% of eruptions I see that capture media or social media attention have wrong images and videos circulating. So it's extremely prevalent. Um, I, it even pops up in media sometimes. So be careful. So something that is very important in volcanology and communication and helping communities around the world is working together. So even with this, you know, small, relatively small amount of communication I do, I have a network of people around the world across disciplines who help me and guide me and support me. This is a team effort. We have Brian Turbush is our guest today. He is a volcano geophysicist turned earthquake and volcano emergency manager in Washington state in the USA. So he's, his title is the earthquake slash volcano program coordinator, but I like the Earthquake and Volcano Coordinator, personally. So, <laughs> welcome, Brian. Oh, thank you for having me. And How are you hello. today? I'm doing pretty well. It's a nice, sunny, unusually sunny fall day in the Pacific wow, Northwest. Wow, and no volcanoes or earthquakes that are taking your attention. I mean, you said it before, but uh, let's be quiet about that <laughs> for now, <laughs> just to be sure. So, you've said to me before that it is a really exciting state to live in. What do you mean by that? Well, it is a, it's a beautiful state to live in, but it's also beautiful partially because of its geologic activity. Um, we have five active volcanoes in the state. We have the second highest seismic risk in the state um, of the United States. We're only behind California in actual seismic risk there. Um, so just a reminder that these can, um, how beautiful it is, can change very quickly, as we saw one particular May 18th morning in 1980. Where, the reason that we have you on today is because... You give us a glimpse into another side of the world of volcanoes. You're on a much more hidden side than we are, especially Eric and I who are out here trying to you know, communicate and get a lot of information out there. But what you do is so, so important, and it is so important that we work with you. So can you explain for us what is an emergency manager and what does that have to do with a volcanic eruption? Oh, for sure. Um, and thank you both for what you do, because every little bit of uh, volcanic information sharing, especially true information about them and education, really does help what we do as well. So emergency management itself is founded based on uh, trying to make emergency response more efficient. I mean, typically when you think of response to emergencies, you see the people on the ground, firefighters, uh, paramedics, first responders going out there and just making sure that people are rescued. 
but there's so much more to it that needs to be coordinated. The emergency management structure was started by wildfires in California, um, wildland firefighters that go out, and they just wanted to make sure there's a way to respond efficiently. So they've been developing this incident command structure that's slowly built up into FEMA, our Federal Emergency Management Agency. So at every different level, there's a different way to respond to emergencies. And this has been built, our incident command structure, to be flexible and scalable depending on what the incident is, from wildfires, um, even to planned events. So you're gonna have a parade in town, you can use the emergency management incident command system to plan for that and to make sure it runs smoothly. And then something up to say a volcano that can be a large scale disaster or could also be very small. You wanna have something that's flexible and scalable in place where people know what they're doing um, so that they can expand if it gets something worse. Something that we've mentioned a couple times on this podcast now, Eric, do you know what I'm thinking? A specific movie that has emergency managers in it. Are you talking about the movie that I I find? I mean, I guess there's a couple, but I find Volcano as the one that I most associate with emergency yeah. management. Yeah, have you seen the movie Volcano, Brian? I have to admit, I'm very sad that I have not seen the movie Volcano <laughs> yet. But it's all about volcano emergency management. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I will go home. Can I give this. a super quick synopsis of the movie, Eric? Tommy Lee Jones is the uh, head of the emergency management in Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, maybe. And there are a series of events that occur, not to spoil uh, what happens in the movie, but there's a series of events that he has to respond to with the help of a, a plucky geologist and other characters that are found throughout the movie, whether it be people in charge of the mass transit system in Los Angeles uh, or other such things, and then a team of demolitions experts. And they're there's a number of, of emergency management questions that come up about how to tackle a surprise earthquake and volcano in the city of Los so Angeles. Is, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness is right. So having a volcano erupt under the city of Los Angeles is the first big major problem with that. But what happens is that there is this event. So let's just say, I don't know, a lava fountain and then a, a, a lava flow. We'll just, we'll, we'll say that for now. And he goes out there and he's actually right in front of it. Like he's on the scene figuring out what the volcano is. First of all, figuring out that it is a volcano, which is kind of funny to watch. But is that what you'd be doing, Brian? If the volcano was erupting, you'd be out there screaming into a walkie-talkie going, it's a volcano, it's erupting. Well, not ideally. So we do have experts that are a little better at that than emergency managers. We work very closely with them. I would like to be personally, but I do have a different role to play. <laughs> but yeah, we work, we have the Cascades Volcano Observatory, which would ultimately be telling us whether something's going on. They work very closely with the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. And we have a Washington Geological Survey as well that would actually be in charge of the geologic response to this. They'd be talking to us and giving us this awareness about what's going on. And not to, uh, to undercut a little of that. But Tommy Lee Jones, in fact, is not. He's at the volcanic eruption because he happened to be passed by it trying to get his daughter from place to place, because that's why he should be in the control center where Don Cheadle, who is his second in command in the movie, is actually got the headset on with the bank of TV screens and everybody on computers doing the whole sort of, we have a breakout of a fire in some part of Los Angeles sorts of coordination. So Tommy Lee, he 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 ended up on the front lines kind of by coincidence in the film. But yeah, I mean, it's because it's the film and it'd be boring if he was just sitting in the command center the whole time. <laughs> well, there are roles for people in the field for sure. Um, 
definitely have liaisons that go out and support the incident command post, which is going to be your situation in the field. But usually that's going to be more uh, in incident command system. The first person that gets on the scene is your incident commander, um, the one who's in charge of allocating resources and sending people to places until somebody arrives who can take over for them. So maybe he didn't do that part quite right, but um, he might have been the best one for the job. That's the thing that happens sometimes. Um, so another point that that brings up, too, is uh, sometimes... In the cases of volcanic eruption, which usually do not happen in the U.S. without warning, we have a pretty robust monitoring system. Our main message is that they won't happen without warning. But um, you do get these warnings from people in the field that watch them closely sometimes. We had a big thing last year where um, people noticed that Mount Baker was steaming. This is something that happens when the atmospheric conditions are correct. But, I mean, a lot of people freak out. They're like, it's going to erupt. There's steam coming out of it. But those, imp- those messages coming in from people that watch it frequently are very important. And I mean, I haven't seen Volcano, but going to Dante's Peak, this is like getting that report that the hot springs are extremely hot. All these do contribute to knowledge about the eruption and our seismometers and gas monitoring can only tell us so much at a time. So it's really important for people that live around volcanoes to pass these messages on to the observatory. CVO has wow, said so this. It's, it's really neat. You know, start, you're starting to paint a picture of just how much work goes on to monitor every event in your state. So you're one state, you just happen to be a very active and exciting state with a lot of big threats or, and small threats as well. So we're talking about the really exciting or frightening or stressful, whichever word you want to use, um, scenario of an eruption. But a lot of your work is actually done before any eruption or earthquake takes place. Am I right? Oh, that's correct. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be doing much right now, but um, we do have jobs currently, so that's good. I feel like they're still important. What do you feel right now is the most important thing in your view that you do before anything happens? Well, so there's a few parts of that, I think, Um, and they all involve a lot of cooperation with other agencies. Um, So emergency management, pre-disaster We can divide what we do into preparedness activities, mitigation activities, and planning activities. Um, Those are three kind of stages that happen. Um, So preparedness is going to be getting people to understand um, not only what their hazards are, um, educating them about hazard maps, what the hazards are in different areas of Washington, um, what's realistic and what's unrealistic. I know you guys have done a big, a lot of talking about Yellowstone and the realism there, but letting them know as well where they can get the most um, information from the experts, where they can get that. So signing them up for alerts, like USGS has the volcano notification service where they can get the, whether it goes from normal to advisory or where they get information statements, where they can get the most accurate information from experts most quickly. Mitigation activities are things like Mount Rainier. We've set up a Lahar siren system. So this is just noticing that there is a possibility due to a huge amount of hydrothermally altered rock in one particular area of Mount Rainier. But there's a tiny little possibility that there could be a lahar that happens without an eruption. We call it like a bump in the night event. This lahar detection system would give the people in those valleys, have a couple rivers that dump out into city. City of Ording has about 8,000 people. It can go further to Puyallup. These sirens would give them warning all the way down to the Puget Sound in Tacoma so that they can get out as quickly as possible. But part of that mitigation, too, is making sure people know what those evacuation routes are. And then things like do not take your car in this evacuation route, because if everybody gets in their cars in that village, nobody's getting out. We've done a lot of the modeling with that. Our our Department of Natural Resources, USGS, work together to model these evacuation routes and pedestrian evacuation. And there's all different ways to do it. But it's shown that if everybody gets in their car, nobody's getting out on time. So educating people to walk. So that's a really interesting 
event that happens. So the city of Auding is an example that I use frequently to talk about what people can do to be ready for an event. So can you explain what the city of Auding does every year? Yeah, so every year, um, going back way before I got here, um, they have done a, an evacuation drill in their schools. So again, students spend a lot of time at school, so it's important to know their evacuation routes from a place where they spend a lot of time. But also, it gives that knowledge that they can walk out in time. They do it in less than an hour. So the sirens there currently go on an assumption that after the detection of the lahar, they have about 45 to 50 minutes before lahar arrives in town. And they're able to evacuate in that time, all the schools, all the students. So the community gets involved in this as well. Yeah, the city has done an excellent job planning for this. and. Um, Recently, after we do a uh, binational exchange with the country of Colombia, this is something put on to learn more about Laharas and other places and what they are capable of and why we need to prepare for them. Um, the fire department has become a huge part of this as well. So every time there's a drill, the fire department runs up the hill and activates their emergency operations center so that they would be ready to respond. This is something that they practice every year right along so with the students. So I want to go back a little step. You mentioned the biannual exchange with Columbia. Why in particular do you have the exchange with Columbia? What triggered that? Well, so this was mainly triggered by the 1985 eruption of Nevado del Ruiz volcano um, and their lahar that happened. So there's been some notice of the similar situation that we have. Going back Rainier. to 1985, you know, that was a very small event um, that produced a lahar, which is a volcanic mud flow. So this is um, melted ice or water that is already in the system that race down volcanoes and they pick up a lot of sediment, a lot of rock of all different sizes from sand size to bigger than your car, trees and everything else. And they can barrel down through these valleys and then spread out once they hit flat land. So the town of Almero did not get warning and it was 23,000 that was killed. Am I correct? Uh, somewhere between, well, in Armero, probably about 23,000, but there was more in the valleys up right. above it. So it was, a, it was a devastating, devastating event. Absolutely. And that was an event that made volcanology as a community say never again. So, you know, it's volcanologists, we're, we're largely scientists, but across the sciences, you know, we, we say we have physics, we have chemistry, we have people who do modeling with computers. We have people who look at rocks, people who look at the crystals and rocks, people who do experiments to try and understand how volcanoes work. But another huge side of volcanology, which I love, is working with social scientists to understand the people side of volcanoes. Social scientists are critical in what we do. And also working with emergency management and city planners and all of that other side of it. You know, we can know everything about volcanoes that there is to know, but we're not going to help people if we can't work with everyone in communities across all levels. So emergency management is incredibly important. Yeah, and that's kind of what inspired me to move from this field after finishing a volcanology degree. I wanted to do something that is uh, more applied in terms of helping people with it. So, yeah, there have been examples of how this binational exchange, how speaking to the people who survived Armero I mean, have located to another city and speaking to the emergency managers and civil defense who are down there responding to this event. They want us to know what happened wrong because they really want this type of event to never happen to anyone else again. So this is put on through US, USAID. Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and a huge partnership with the USGS. Um, but it's been really helpful in impacting the people around here to 
take action. So earlier this year as well, the sorry, the city of Puyallup, uh, another one that is very close with a lot larger population than Oding, they ran an evacuation of 9,000 people earlier this year, the largest volcano evacuation in the U.S. And that was mainly because their emergency manager went down to Colombia, saw this, and decided she wanted to do something about it. So this has had a huge impact on the people around here. I mean, so Nevada del Ruiz is in my mother's backyard. She's from Pareda, which is just on one of the other sides of the volcano. And I remember going through the area uh, when I was a kid, just a few years after the uh the mud flows, the lahars, and seeing some of the, you know, you could drive even, you didn't have to be close to our marrow to find river valleys that were, look like they'd been paved with cement. It's just sort of remarkable. On one hand, it was a terrible disaster. On the other hand, it could have been worse because of cities like Pareda and Manizales that are on different sides of the volcano. And then when, if you go and, you know, if it's worth reading some of the accounts of what happened leading up to the eruption in things like um, Victoria Bruce's No Apparent Danger, um, where you can really see how it was a combination of poor planning, misinformation by some people, a, a a lack of understanding of other pieces of information that made a highly preventable disaster into an actual disaster. It's kind of remarkable to see how how it is such a roadmap of what shouldn't be happening in a situation like this. And um, it's, you know, again, people like to ask me why I ended up becoming a volcanologist. Um, I don't know. I can't really say for sure that 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 sort of early experience seeing some of the impacts of this uh, near my mother's hometown was the the moment, but it definitely is something that sticks out in my head quite a lot when I think about it. Yeah, I can completely understand that. And just any kind of disaster like this that we can use as a roadmap to prevent future disasters, to mitigate against them and help plan for the future. We really appreciate the help that Columbia has made and all the individual departments around there that are they're willing to help us and they're willing to help other people around the world learn from this event. And they're definitely learning from it. Some of the communities we visited actually do drills where they go up on the hill, they sound their sirens, and they spend the time overnight there. That's We're not quite that hardcore in our practice yet, but um, yeah, that's it's realistic in some there cases. There are so many different levels of getting this to work, and I really appreciate the work that all of you do and everyone else out there you're working with. And, you know, the amount of coordination that you do in your job is, is just incredible, but, you know, this stuff works. And when there's a crisis, our brains don't work the way that they work in a normal everyday scenario. So just thinking, well, I would have just done this is often not the case. Practicing these events, actually practicing what you're going to do is life-saving. When it comes to practicing, you have another yearly event, which is going to be happening very soon, the Great Shakeout. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So the Great Shakeout, um, sponsored by the Southern California Earthquake Center, it's the world's largest earthquake drill. So every year, um, last year, there were about 60 million participants worldwide. Um, I'm one of the coordinators for Washington, so we try to focus on just increasing our numbers each year. But we got up to about 1.4 million as of this recording. We're hoping for at least 1.5 increase of this year. Um, It's just everybody, we want everybody that lives within an earthquake hazard zone to just take a minute to drop cover and hold on because this is the protective action that's recommended when an earthquake strikes. So we want people to practice, get that in their muscle memory so that when an earthquake strikes without warning or possibly with a little bit of warning once we get the West Coast earthquake early warning system up, still it's going to take you a couple seconds to process, oh, the ground is shaking, this is an earthquake. 
the quicker you can do that, the quicker you can protect you guys yourself. Like one right now. You see do how long right it takes us to get under the table. Eric, Does you start an earthquake? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I just had to pause for a moment to see. What... Yes, that's a yes. Wait, are you predicting <laughs> an earthquake? One, but... Okay. Okay. All right. No. Just don't do okay. that. No. Okay. Well, Brian, call call us an earthquake. I don't know how you do that. How does this? How does the shakeout go? Is there a countdown? Is there a time? Oh goodness. Um, so we actually have a an audio file you can play on the shakeout.org/resources website, um, and that's a really good way to do it in your organization. You can have your whole one. Earthquake. Oh. Drop cover and hold Sorry. on. <laughs> I'm under the desk now. Um, oh, hello, dust. Uh, and I'm holding on. So my hands are over my head and I'm under a sturdy desk. Did I, did I do it right? Are you holding onto your desk as well? Uh, yes, I am now. <laughs> yeah, so that's an important part to hold on. Some people don't think of. You got that cover above your head, but sometimes it'll shake right away from you. The ground is shaking back and forth really intensely. Um, but the covering your head part really important because one of the biggest dangers during an earthquake is things falling on you. Th- that was actually... Over the last couple of weeks, when uh, in my intro geoscience class, we were talking about earthquakes, that's one of the biggest surprises to many students is what is in fact the the ha- biggest potential hazard to their their lives in an earthquake is that sort of head trauma of things falling on you. Yes. So, you know, when, when I ask them, like, what are you going to do in an earthquake? You know, some of them are give you the the um, get in a doorway, which is uh-huh. which is, I guess, somewhat dispelled idea of what to do i get the impression oh it's dispelled yeah okay good i just wanted to make sure that i was i was dispelling it appropriately but um but yeah they're always it's always surprising that 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 the idea that there's stuff above you that's going to fall and getting under something sturdy is going to help you is for uh, a surprise to them yeah so you have to dispel a lot of rumors about yellowstone we have to dispel a lot of rumors about earthquakes whether it's predictions whether it's uh, what to do during it So for the doors, I always like to tell people that are in a large room. uh, So what if you all got up and ran for the door right now? Get a lot of (laughs) blank looks in response. Um, Not everyone can fit in the doorway, but then there's also this door thing in a lot of doorways that swings back and forth and can hit you. Um, Doors are no longer the most structurally sound part, uh, but also just the idea of getting up and running while the ground is accelerating back and forth close to a G more than an acceleration due to gravity in some cases. A lot of the injuries that also happen are from falling during that time. Um, yeah, yeah, get down and get stable. So I'm still under the desk because I want to ask, how long do you stay on the ground or on your desk? Or So if the shaking is stopped, I'm okay to get out, unless the shaking starts again, of course. <laughs> well, while you're down there, uh, you can get out if you would like now, but uh, while people are down there for the shakeout drill, one thing we like them to do is just kind of Look around and think about what's around you during an earthquake, because we've talked about this falling hazard. If you're in your desk at work, it's a common place that you're going to spend a lot of time. Is your monitor in danger of falling on you, your computer, or something like that? Some of the ideas for this are to protect you, but then if you need to get back to work after an earthquake and prevent as much economic damage as possible, that's another thing you can do. If you can prevent your monitor from being destroyed, your computer during an earthquake, that's going to help everything get back up more quickly and get back to normal, whatever normal is at that point. So yeah, spend that minute under your desk thinking about that thing. I'm, I'm back up now. It was, it was getting 
Okay. But so something I thought of, you know, I, I have, as I've been open on Twitter, I have a chronic pain disorder. Um, so some days I'm slightly less mobile than others, but there are a lot of people who are much, much worse off than me. So what about people who are in wheelchairs or have physical limitations? You know, can they still be involved with this too? How, how would, what advice do you have for people that aren't quite as mobile as I am? Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. So um, SCEC and we have the Earthquake Country Alliance. These are probably the best resources you can look at. They have uh, earthquakecountry.org slash step five. Um, so there's step five. They have seven steps to earthquake safety. Um, and the fifth one is what to do actually during an earthquake. So the recommendation, what they've looked on there is um, people with mobility challenges, you can lock, cover, and hold on if you want a very simple way to do it. But the idea is to lock your wheels so that you're staying in one place at least and not sliding all over the place and holding on to something if you can. Now, I got this question recently for people that struggle to even drop to the ground. And I would say the best thing is it's really important to have some stability while the ground is shaking because you don't want to be inadvertently thrown to the ground because that can result in a lot worse injury. So if you can do anything, like break, brace yourself against an interior wall, hold on to a bed or something, that's going to be a much safer way to go than trying to be thrown to the ground. Um, but also, all right, question for you guys. What is statistically the safest place to be during an uh, earthquake? I have no idea. The middle of a field. Middle of a field. The middle of a field. You know, that wouldn't be too bad. That, but uh, So at least people have been injured during earthquakes while they're lying in bed. Lying in bed? Really? So huh. don't yes. put hanging photos or anything above your bed. Yeah, you know that like nine foot poster of your um, ancestors. You don't want to have that heavy thing above your bed, <laughs> of course. But um, for the most part, I was helping a friend move recently in Washington, and uh, she collects katanas, Japanese swords. Um, oh, I, I insisted that she did not keep those on the shelf above her bed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, if you stay there, the recommendation is flip over, protect your head with a pillow. Um, that's another good one for people that have mobility issues. Um, just in case you're already in a bed, don't try to get out and drop to the floor automatically because probably safer staying there and just kind of writing it out it prevents you from being thrown to the floor. Yeah, Thank you. Good. And so, something that's really stuck in my mind, and I think this is stuck in my mind in a gruesome way because my mother is a nurse in an emergency room, um, is that one of the biggest injuries during an earthquake is cut feet from broken glass. Oh, yes. So the advice is to have shoes, like good shoes, by your bed. So if, if an earthquake does happen while you're sleeping, which, you know, is a good chance, considering how much time we spend in bed, that you have a pair of shoes that you can immediately put on. Do you imagine having an earthquake and having to piece your life back together and having glass in your feet at the same time, like that would add so much more suck to the entire situation. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, keep that pair of shoes under your bed, um, possibly with a go bag in case you need to go anywhere fast. I know a lot of people think they need to evacuate immediately after an earthquake. You don't necessarily need to evacuate. The only things that are going to cause that really are, well, your, your place is definitely structurally unsound. You see cracks forming. It looks like it's going to fall because it could be aftershocks afterward that will make it less stable. Um, but other than that, if there's fire, if there's arcing wires, if you smell gas, those are really the only things that are going to make you need to evacuate a building. I feel like I've been lucky in the sense that I have not been in a earthquake of that magnitude, at least not 
old enough to know. Apparently, I was in an earthquake that was fairly significant in Colombia when I was like two, but I don't remember it. All I remember is being told by my mother of being on the tarmac at the airport there and everything shaking. But the oh, only two earthquakes... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was. We're we're getting off the airplane apparently in Pareda, and there is a fairly, I think it was a five or a six or something like that. Um, it's in the late seventies, something like that. But the only earthquakes I I am conscious of being in were ones that I didn't feel this huge shaking. It was I was in Corvallis when the Nisqually earthquake happened. Oh yeah, um, and we had we had some shake like the lights swayed, but it wasn't like you felt the ground moving beneath you. And then I was here in Ohio during the Virginia earthquake a few years back, and my desk actually shimmied because we we're on the third floor uh-huh. on top of a hill. That was a surprise too. Is that you know a lot of the students here being in Ohio, they're like earthquakes, whatever. But earthquakes, you know, there they there is a great shakeout for the midwestern states because there's the hazard for significant earthquake shaking potentially in in the midwest because of some of the various vault zones so even if you think you're in a state that that is not you know and they instantly go to the students instantly go to things like i'm not going to ever i don't want to live in california because there's gonna the the hazard of earthquakes um but it's it, there's actually a lot more dispersed earthquake hazard around the country than a lot of people think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we just had the Washington Monument open after years of being shut down after an earthquake. And the videos of that shaking were pretty intense. Oh, yeah. After Brian mentioned this last week, I looked up the video. Go look up the video of the earthquake Washington Monument on YouTube. It's it's pretty scary stuff. So all my friends in Washington, D.C., you can sign up for the Great Shakeout as well. What's the website again, Brian, where people can sign up? shakeout.org and yeah you can look for your region there see who else is participating Um, register your whole organization have everybody practice and just spend that minute thinking about what's in your area what would you do during an earthquake and yeah the other thing is people travel so you might find yourself in a zone where their earthquakes are more common and since they strike without warning it's just best to know how to protect yourself and think about that now. It's an applicable skill for pretty much many disasters, right? So like here in Ohio, it might not be earthquakes, but we get plenty of tornadoes. So just know, being mentally prepared for different types of disaster is going to be mentally, I guess, and physically prepared with, with things is, is a step that a lot of people they don't take the time to make that step happen. <laughs> no, and that's a really important step to think about. Um, so we talk about preparing people, but again, just having people be aware of their hazards is a huge part of that. My main focus is the earthquakes and volcanoes, but like you mentioned, there's a lot of other hazards. We've had a couple tornadoes in Washington this year. Floods, wildfires are a lot more common. It's all about just knowing your hazards um, and just knowing how to respond to them. But that's something you can talk to your local emergency management office about. If you didn't know you have one, you probably do. And they're good people to know. They might have an alerting system for you. Um, I recommend getting to know them at least through their website and probably their social media presence will help. If not, you can probably go up to your state. So what do you find, Brian, as the biggest obstacle you run into in trying to talk to people about preparedness for these situations? Or are most people take it seriously and think it's it's as important as obviously you think it does? So there's a couple things for that. Um, I think one of the first ones is just kind of this assumption that it'll never happen to me. Um, you mentioned the Nisqually earthquake, and that was our largest earthquake we've had in a long time here in Washington. There was some pretty intense shaking, and especially in Olympia and Seattle. But then in other parts, there wasn't much shaking. And people just kind of assume that's over. But we have a uh, Cascadia subduction zone just off the coast. 
uh, that could potentially create a magnitude nine. We know from history it happened in 1700. We know from GPS data that the fault is locked and it could happen in the next 30 minutes. It could happen not in our lifetimes, but it could happen. That's kind of the point. So the main thing we try to get people to think about there is if you're prepared for an earthquake, which we suggest being two weeks ready, two weeks is a lot of supplies. So that's kind of the other boundary. But if you're prepared for that, you're prepared for any other power outage whether we have a large windstorm, whether we have something like what's going on in California right now, where there's a sudden power outage that's extended. If you have these supplies, you're ready for those. Um, so the other one, again, is just people getting supplies and thinking about them because I mean, there are people that have economic disadvantage and it's hard for them to even think about preparing for more than just their next grocery shopping trip. And we understand that, but we want, we want to make this accessible and we really want to empower people to know that they can take these steps. And even if it's just something as small as adding a gallon of water and a can of non-perishable food to your next grocery trip, you have those. So next time, next time there is a power outage, they're available. We just want to make this part of the culture. Um, preparing a go kit, if you need to evacuate in a hurry, whether your house survives or not, is from a lahar, for example, that's kind of up to chance at that point. But you can keep some important things with you water, a water filter, something to keep warm if you're evacuating in the middle of the night, flashlights, batteries, a way to get more information, alerts, maybe a cell phone charger, a little bit of food at least. Medications. But then some other medications, very important. And those can be hard to store in advance too. Um, but one other thing is just um, important documents, maybe your medical information, your pet's medical information. Visa, if you're a foreigner like me. That would be one for you to take a picture of. Take pictures of these, put them on a USB stick, put it in a waterproof container, and keep that in a backpack that's by your shoes under your bed. So if you have to leave in a hurry in the middle of the night, don't have to worry about those injured feet and you have all that stuff with you. Do you, do you find it challenging sometimes too to talk to children about preparing for these sorts of disasters? Because they can obviously be frightening things to think about. And I know at least with with my kids, when we've ever when we've had to go do things related to tornado warnings and such, it can it can definitely cause a lot of panic. Is there is there advice you can offer on that front? Um, so I'd say for the preparedness aspect, there are certainly things you can do to make it more fun for the kids. Um, so one thing we also like people to put in their disaster kits is don't just buy one at the store. Um, kind of make it personal because there's certainly things you need that other people don't necessarily need. Well, for me, it's um, I need to put some form of coffee in mine just to. Um, be normal, be just a human, but um, so maybe you have something else. So if you're preparing with your kids, think about having their favorite piece of candy, their favorite candy bar or something like that. And uh, every six months, because you got to restock these once in a while, things do expire. So you say, hey, maybe when you change your smoke detector battery every six months, like you're supposed to, everyone does that, right? Maybe when you do that, you also have your kids take out their piece of candy and enjoy it and put a new one in their favorite piece. So just kind of find ways to incorporate what they normally to incorporate preparedness into your daily life and make it fun. But it is a little more challenging to talk to kids about it. Um, we try to scare people and then empower them. Basically, <laughs> we don't try to scare people, but um, just make them aware of just the extent of the potential hazard. But then also you can prepare, you can survive, provide examples, provide yeah, stories. The, um, the wonderful man who owned the house I'm currently living in, he lives in San Francisco. And he came home once and I basically spent three days scaring him about earthquakes with the knowledge that I have as a volcanologist and not a seismologist from <laughs> listening to all the, the specialists and, but, but empowering him, like, you know, you can make a big difference. And he was, you know, I think like a lot of people like, yeah, I'll get it done one day, but 
he happens to be such a kind and generous person. I'm like, okay, well, what if your neighbors need help? You're yes. going to want to help them. That is in your nature. That's in your nature. How can you help people if you're not prepared? And he went home and he got a kit together. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's not just about you. It's about the people around you who might need help too. That you know, I've heard so many people in social sciences, emergency management, and preparedness say that you know your first responders are going to be your neighbors. Yes. That's one of our key messages. So, you know, be there for each other as well. And we can do this. It's always a team effort. All of this is a team effort. Humanity should be a team effort. <laughs> Absolutely. For the example of that, too, you got to prepare your car if you spend a lot of time in one, if you have one. Um, so I have like jumper cables in there. I'm ready for that if I need to. I've used them three times since I put them in my car. None of them have been for myself. It's just pulling up next to somebody that needs a jump. Their car is there. So th- that material is there for you to help other people if you need to. And just be aware of who might need help in your neighborhood um, around you, whatever the disaster is. If there's somebody you might need to check on, maybe somebody that has a medical condition that if the power's out, they might have some sort of machine that is medically necessary. Be check on a them. good human. Yes, that's an excellent message. Yeah, and, and that's something, you know, I ran a social media workshop a few weeks ago and I've been on a few panels and with communication, that's the, with everything, that is the message I, I try to give to everyone. Be kind, be patient, be compassionate, listen, pay attention and support each other. And that, you know, we need to do that, all of us, more with everything but especially when you live in areas which is a lot of areas with different kinds of disasters zones or hazards be good humans i think i was talking to sarah mcbride who is an incredible social scientist with earthquake experience and she was talking about one of their research results was with the shakeout and similar things like that that people might be too embarrassed to participate, to actually practice getting under a table. Um, Do you have any advice for that? Um, I would say just do it. And uh, the more people that are doing it, the better. I think that's something else that came out of Sarah's paper was just having people do it in an office setting, for example, really helps. I mean, uh, what we have done uh, as well, I'm we encourage people to post selfies under their desk as well. Um, And I will absolutely do one where I probably look like a gremlin. I've heard that as the description. Um, you know, you're hiding under your desk in the dark. It's not your best angle. But um, the more people that do it, the more participation you're going to have. And what it's about is not looking good. It's not about taking this time out of your daily life. Earthquakes are inconvenient. They're going to happen, but it's not going to be on a schedule. that's okay. Well, I'm ready to get under my desk now. (laughs) It's not going to give you time for that sort of thing. So just practice now is what we encourage. Uh, One other thing we've done in our office is uh, put candy in a little thank you note under people's desk. Just go around and tape that under there. So while they're under there, maybe they'll discover that if they're uh, in addition to reacquainting themselves with the dust bunnies they lost. But yeah, we have preparedness tips down there. Um, Office has preparedness kits. And some places will go as big as just um, making it a whole mandatory continuity of operations planning drill. Like, What would we actually do if there's an earthquake? Are we doing an evacuation? Are we taking this time to communicate and make sure that our chains of communication are in order. Yeah, you can do anything you want with this. That's It's just one occasion per year. And actually, all of our coastal communities will do tsunami evacuation drills what as well. What is your worst nightmare? Oh, man. Uh, so I, I can't say that the Cascadia subduction zone sets off Yellowstone. So um, <laughs> actually, what, what I'm going to say is... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Which, very... we're going to clarify, is not actually a thing. <laughs> no. Nope. Um, so I would say it's that event, this eruption, well, landslide of uh, Mount Rainier that happens without any volcanic activity. That is the worst case scenario that could happen here. Pretty much any other volcanic scenario that would arrive would happen with some warning. There'd be some unrest that would happen beforehand. Ideally, you'd follow an information statement moving up to an advisory. We'd get briefed about what's happening, even if it happens over a one or two day period. Um, we'd get some warning. But this one would happen very, very quickly. Um, just kind of a bump in the night. Landslide happens. There's a lahar coming down the valley towards Ording, towards Puyallup, towards the Nisqually River as well, based on the models. So all these communities would just suddenly have their lahar sirens go off and they would have to evacuate. That's my nightmare scenario, I would say. But looking at that, it's looking at what these communities are already doing to prepare themselves. I think that the steps they're taking to mitigate this, practicing their evacuations, empowering their community members, yeah, Ording and Puyallup have done a fantastic job with this. Having everyone aware of the evacuation routes, there's signs all over, and people are just understand. They associate the city of Ording with this has a potential for hazard, but they're doing something about it as well. They're not just sitting still and accepting their fate of being buried by Olahar. They're taking action. They're taking steps to do this, and I think that is making the nightmare slightly less bad. It would be a terrible ongoing situation to have to deal with that lahar and to recover from it, to respond to it. But I think that the people, the human element of it are doing what they can and we're gonna do everything we can to support them. So you'd say that Rainier, in your mind, is the, the volcano with the highest potential hazard in Washington. What would you put as number two? Um, so yeah, if you look at the Enviews report, the National Volcano Early Warning System, Mount St. Helens is ranked higher on there, um, but they're both very high threat volcanoes. Just because Mount St. Helens has been a lot more prolific in the past, and it's erupted a lot more frequently as well, it'll probably be the next one to it, uh, erupt as well. Um, so I would say that's probably next, but uh, that's more just the ash hazard is going to affect a lot more people as well as, oh man, that, that volcano will get a lot of attention. So there's the whole potential for a crisis that's happening as well. Saw that in Hawaii last year as well. Just the international media response was insane. But our volcanoes are like celebrities. Yeah. It's... So what would be the sort of things that people might be concerned about with, let's say, activity at places like Baker or Glacier Peak? Well, so this is something we've been working on as well, just trying to get uh, a better awareness of what the complete hazard is. So USGS, our Washington Geological Survey, they do an excellent job creating hazard maps that show the geological hazards. What we don't have as much of, which we'd like to learn, is getting a better idea of full hazard analysis. Um, what exactly is going to be affected, how much power is going to go out, how many people are going to be without that, and then how is the local economy going to be affected as well. Um, so they did a good job with this in Mount Baker in preparation for an exercise, had a bunch of student interns at uh, Western Washington University um, do a research project to see, um, so the agricultural area that's within the Lahar inundation zone, for example, that's up to almost a billion dollar industry. Um, between dairy, between all the types of berries that are grown there. Also, if that's closed for an extended period of time, Mount Baker has a ski area. That's a huge part of tourism in the area. That's a huge, um, has a huge impact on just the national forest, which is also a big tourist. That's another nice thing about our volcanoes. They're, most of them are surrounded by federal land. So if the volcano becomes active, the feds can close it and we can blame them. So that always works pretty well. <laughs> Which, well, yeah, there was a bit of a struggle with Mount St. Helens of people actually listening, which, you know, is, is part of it. When you have this beautiful, calm-looking volcano that people can't see the seismicity or the gas emissions that we can detect. 
it can be a struggle. But I, I want to, you've mentioned big impacts and you've mentioned Rainier and you've mentioned some of the areas that might be impacted. And I want to give you a public opportunity to answer the question that I know the answer to. Would Seattle be screwed with an event from Rainier? It would be impacted, but not in the way a lot of people think. There's this whole like, oh, it'll be 90 seconds and then I'm dead. No. So one myth of there that just seems to be pretty prevalent is that Mount Rainier is the biggest volcano, so clearly it's going to have the biggest eruption. No. The answer is no. <laughs> so its its largest ash bed, I think, is it's either a tenth or a twentieth the size of the Mount St. Helens 1980 eruption. So it is not a huge ash producer. Like we, we've gone over in previous podcast episodes how every volcano has its own personality. And we understand that personality by studying the volcano and all of the deposits that it's produced throughout its history. So that tells us what eruptions specific volcanoes are more likely to actually produce. So you're telling us that Rainier is typically doesn't produce enormous ash deposits and ash is ground up pulverized rock. So that can be quite a big hazard, especially when it's really heavy and building up. So that's not one of the biggest concerns at Rainier. Yeah, that's correct. So h- how much impact would, a, would an eruption of Rainier have on activity at like SeaTac at the airport? Because that's a big hub for flights. And with Rainier right there, even if it's putting up a little bit of ash, have is there a lot of thought of how much air traffic would be impacted by something like that? Oh, there's definitely a lot of thought about it. So kind of if I go back to the planning step of emergency management, and again, this is like we have this huge process and very little of it is actual response, what's going to happen. But we plan for this response just in case. And all we can really plan is coordination planning, who's going to talk to who. So the second there's any sort of eruption, we will be on the phone with National Weather Service. Cascades Volcano Observatory will be coordinating with them as well just to make sure there's an idea of where that ash could potentially go. So they would be on the line as well and just temporary flight restrictions, any sort of flight restrictions. So I just want to make sure we got this clear and concise. So with these large Lahar events that rainy year is capable of producing, this would not wipe out Seattle. A large Lahar event, which is the largest hazard um, to the most people from Mount Rainier, would not directly impact Seattle. That's a question I've got so many times. So <laughs> there we have it. So I would say yeah, an eruption from Mount Rainier, unless there's a very odd wind direction or it's blowing to the northwest, would not impact Seattle directly. Although Tacoma might be in line of, I mean, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the largest lahars from Rainier have made it all the way down into where Tacoma is today, correct? Yeah, to the lower parts of it. Um, so Tacoma is on a huge hill and uh, most of the downtown area is on a hill as well. Um, but then there's the port of Tacoma, which is in the area that this could reach. So it's important for them to understand there is a hazard. Um, and we do work with them on the coordination plans as well. Most lahars are not going to be that large. That's just the way it is. Um, and uh, <laughs> the other thing is when we look at these hazard maps, you see all these yellow and red lines coming off the volcano. Another misconception is just one eruption is going to fill every single one of these river valleys with mud. And that's just not the case. Um, uh, it's going to be directed in one area. Unless it's a huge eruption, they're not all going to have lahars at once either. But the idea with lahars too is that they have a lasting legacy. So we're still dealing with ash hazards, um, sediment deposition from the lahar at Mount St. Helens in 1980. They had to build a sediment retention structure that's just preventing the Columbia River from filling up with debris from that lahar. And this is... So recovery is one of the challenging parts of this. Yeah, because... You drop all that sediment, 
it's going to go somewhere. It fills in the land. It's going to be something new. And the analogy we always use for that as well is, I mean, you fill up your bathtub with sand and then put the same amount of water in it. You're going to have water running all over the ground. There's going to be floods in areas that weren't flooded before. And then there's going to be sediment everywhere that there wasn't sediment before. So lahars have a lasting bad for shipping, having floods in new areas. I mean, bringing in FEMA's flood mitigation and flood insurance issues. Man, there's all sorts when you come to that. Um, just new areas that can flood. Um, so yeah, lahars are very challenging. And uh, I think the best way to describe them as a hazard is if you can see the mountain, it's, it's going to impact you in some way if it erupts. Um, whether the lahars impact your commute, whether they impact an area that might have some power in an area you are, or just because an eruption of the mountain is going to cause a huge amount of people to come in for media internationally. You're going to see this on the news, and it's going to be stressful in some way. So any of our volcanoes erupting are probably going to affect your life if you live near them. And you can see this volcano from a huge area of the state. It's beautiful, but <laughs> it's... It's an active volcano, and you just need people to be aware of that and what it, what that actually means yeah, for them. Yeah, you know, we saw with the Iceland eruption that no one can pronounce in 2010 that, you know, that wasn't a huge eruption, but that closed down the airspace over an area in Europe. So if we have one of these western volcanoes erupting, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the western states that have to be prepared and worrying about this. So it's it's a big big team effort but something you've highlighted I think very well today is there is so much work going on at so many different levels and so much coordination well ahead of time to help communities respond and recover to all of these events. Yeah and trying to learn from anything that happens around the world. I was out in Hawaii working with their state agency last year just to see how they're responding to a volcano. Hopefully I learned some things from them because that was a very interesting response, but hanging out two islands over. But yeah, just helping people prepare ahead of time, understand their hazards, know where to get accurate information. I think those are the main key points we want to get across. And then just plan with everybody. So I guess the other thing with that too, just one more, <laughs> is uh, to say when there's a lahar, when there's a volcanic eruption, this idea that every emergency that happens, every disaster is going to be local first. So whether it's a city that has to evacuate, or then there's another city further down the river that just has an increased amount of water coming down, each of those cities, each of those communities is going to have a different impact from the same event. So our job in emergency management as well is to coordinate response to all of those. That's why we need a higher level up to do that planning ahead of time. Um, just make sure that we look at this as a whole and try to allocate resources in the best way possible, but to as many people as possible. And if we need to call on the federal government to assist more people at once, that's that's another part of our response. So just looking at the whole picture, having awareness of it, and trying to assist everybody at once. The priorities are save lives, preserve property, and then protect the economy and the environment. So that's kind of what we do wow. in this field. And we can all help each other and ourselves and you guys to do your job by empowering ourselves with knowledge and practice, right? That's something you've said a few times is empowering communities and individuals to protect themselves is a big part of your job. Yeah. To steal a line from uh, an old favorite captain planet. I know we have a few of those in common. Um, <laughs> the power is yours. There you go. I just gave it to you. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a fantastic having you on. Thank you so much for having me.
Thanks again for listening to yet another episode of Popular Volcanics. We'd like to thank our guest for this week, Brian Turbush from the Washington State Emergency Management Agency. If you'd like to support the podcast, feel free to head over to patreon.com and find Popular Volcanics and make your pledge. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Pop Volcanics. If you want to get all the information from this episode, including links and other useful bits, head over to popularvolcanics.weebly.com. If you have any questions, feel free to send us an email at popularvolcanics at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. Music